Well, as you know, if you've been around, you know that we are in a series of messages as we teach through God's Word together on Sunday mornings. We are in a series of messages we're calling Sojourners because... Why are we calling it sojourners? Because as followers of Jesus, this world, this earthly life that we experience is not our true home, right? Followers of Jesus, you believers in Jesus, you are, the Bible calls you citizens of heaven. And so, and, and so as citizens of heaven, if you're a follower of Jesus, sometimes we go, what are we doing here? And, 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 it, and it's true, we are passing through this, this earthly life. We are sojourners. That, that this is not our true home, and yet, as we've talked about in recent weeks, this is where we are. And is this by accident, or is this God's sovereign purpose for us? It's, of course, his sovereign purposes. We want to ask God, how are you at work in us during our sojourn? We are citizens of heaven. We long to be with him. We long for Jesus to return and set all things right, don't we? And yet, in the meantime, Lord, what do you have for us as sojourners? So, grab your Bible and open with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. Open your Bibles on your lap, keep your finger in the text, or open your Bible app and follow along. We're in 1 Peter chapter 2, and uh, the the verses that we're going to cover that are new to us this morning, or new in this series, are going to start at verse 13. But, as is often the case, in order to hear from God through his word, starting at verse 13, I think it's so helpful for us, whether you've been here the last few weeks or not, to consider the context. What is happening in this letter that Peter wrote? And, 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 he, and, and God's word is, is living and active and relevant to you and I today, as just as relevant as this letter was when it was written. So, so uh, what is Peter, what is God through Peter's letter saying to us? Let's look first at the context. And so um, we pick up where we left off last Sunday. As we ask ourselves last Sunday, as God's people, as sojourners, how do we interact with the world? How do we relate to our culture? How do we uh, interact with various people and people that we like and people that we don't like and people we agree with and people we don't agree with? As God's people, how do we relate to and, uh, and interact in the world as we sojourn? And we talked last Sunday about some options there. And we won't take as much time right now, but we talked about the extremes of, of uh, disengaging, just taking ourselves out of the mix. Man, this world's tough. I don't want anything to do with it. I'm out. We could do that, but that's not a biblical response for followers of Jesus. We talked about another extreme, imposing our Christianity on everybody else in a forceful, irreverent, disrespectful manner. That would be another option, but not a biblical response for Christ followers. We could um, be conformed to the world. Oh, wait, there's a specific scripture that says, do not be conformed to the world. And so how do we interact? Last Sunday, we said that uh, this passage, that where we start, is urging followers of Jesus to be those who declare the king, who declare and proclaim the one true king, Jesus, and, and for followers of Jesus to be those whose lives display the kingdom, 
whose lives, words, and actions display what it's like to live in obedience to Jesus in our spheres of influence, in this earthly life, during our sojourn. We are to be uh, those who declare and those who display. So let's start at verse 9. We want to get to 13 for our new topics this morning. But again, where, what's happening in the flow of this letter first? 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, followers of Jesus. You are a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? Why are you God's people? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. You, followers of Jesus, declare. There's, our, there's where we got that declare. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Then verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. And then this one in verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Here's where we are urged to display We declare Jesus, and we are urged to have lives that are honorable, that display what it's like to follow Jesus, so that, verse 12 continues, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. So as God's chosen people, how do we interact with the world? How do we relate to this this culture during our earthly sojourn? We, We could hide and avoid We could try to manufacture heaven on earth and cause it, kind of force it to happen on our own strength. No, we could just kind of go with the flow and allow culture to overwhelm and inform and influence us. No, but rather, let's ask for God's help to make this true, that followers of Jesus How do we relate to our culture? We declare the greatness of Jesus and display what living for him looks like. In every situation we come to, display what it's like to live for Jesus. In every interaction we have during our earthly sojourn, we are urged to display what living for Jesus looks like. And so now we come to, in Peter's letter, three very practical examples of three areas in our earthly lives where we have this opportunity with God's help working in us to display, to to declare the king and to display the kingdom. And these three practical areas are, um, as we relate to governing authorities, the government, as we relate to uh, our workplaces, people we work alongside, perhaps we could consider fellow students. And then we, we have this practical opportunity taught here in First Peter, how do, we, how do we follow Jesus, honor Jesus in our marriages? And so today we're going to cover two, and then next Sunday we're going to cover uh, Peter's uh, exhortations to marriage. So first we come up to verse 13. And we're asking God, how... During our sojourn, do we display life in the kingdom as it relates to the fact that we find ourselves living under governing authorities? Let's look to the word, verse 13. 
be subject for the Lord's sake, or some of your translations may say submit for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. Everyone say sent by him. Referring to what? Sent by who? The Lord. Sent by God. Sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. And honor the emperor. So let, the, let God's word sink in a little bit there. And depending on your personality, maybe your upbringing, our tendency to an American point of view, it's okay if the word be subject to or submit to causes a little friction at first. And now, with that friction there, if it is, maybe for some of you it's not, if, if there's a little discomfort with the word submit, let me ask you to consider what God has to say. We just said we don't want to be conformed to the world. We don't want to be going along with the culture and be influenced by the culture and take on the attitudes and opinions of the culture, but rather, do we, church family, want to hear from and be shaped by God? and interact with our world, not hiding or avoiding, not forcing Christianity upon people loudly, not conforming and being influenced, but by being those who declare the true king and display what living in the kingdom is like. And so now with that in mind, would you take a fresh look at the word be subject to? It doesn't mean... What, first of all, what doesn't, what, what doesn't this mean? What, when we're asked to submit to our governing authorities, this does not mean that you can't be an influence for good in our culture. Would God want you to honor him as you live in our culture? Yes. So, so be subject to the governing authorities does not mean you can't have a Christ-like, God-honoring influence on the culture. By all means, be a citizen. Be a citizen uh, be a follower of Jesus and living out your citizenship and in voting and in participating and in speaking for the good news of the gospel and the way that Jesus would interact with the world, by all means, allow God to work through you to be an influence for the gospel, for the good news of Jesus in your life. What else does this not mean? When we are asked to submit to the governing authorities, this does not mean Choosing party affiliation over being a citizen of the kingdom of God. 
when we're asked to submit to our authorities, our earthly authorities, this does not mean putting earthly authorities over the one true king. When we're asked to submit to the human authorities, this does not mean putting human laws over and above God's laws. Submitting to the governing authorities, um, we, 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 and yet, it's, and yet those, that's some of what it doesn't mean, and yet it's here, right? And yet it's here in Scripture. Submit, be subject to the governing authorities, and do so, church family, to the glory of Jesus. Do so with the purposes of people seeing you interact with the world and giving the credit to Jesus. Be those who declare the king and display what living for him looks like. Now, unless your earthly authorities command you to do something counter to the scriptures or against God, then the scriptures would teach there would be opportunity, there would be, it would be okay to react in civil disobedience, choosing God and his word and his commands over what the human authorities say. You with me on that? But the heart of the passage is to learn what it looks like to display Jesus as we interact with, the, with governing authorities. And so I'm actually going to take us to Romans 13, and you, you could turn there. You don't have to because it'll be on the screen. I don't often do this, but we have this same topic. So we're studying Peter's words. Now here are Paul's words on the same topic. What does, what does it mean then to submit to the governing authorities? Paul writes, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. Church family, Everything that happens around us has gone across God's desk. Are you with me on that? Our authorities, whether we like them or not, whether we agree with them or not, whether they're in this party or that party, it's come across God's desk. There is no authority except that instituted by God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Verse 2, therefore... Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. You skip down to verse 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God. God Sovereign over all things, creator of the universe, in charge. Nothing has spun out of his control. These are not accidents. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God, serving under him, accomplishing his purposes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this various, very thing. So, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. 
as followers of Jesus, exhorted to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of the dark and into the light, as followers of Jesus who are to declare the true king and display what living for him in our culture looks like, part of that is learning how to honor God as we submit to the governing authorities. And there's so much more that could be said. And there's certainly going to be something I missed or something I wish I'd said, but I'd encourage you to study God's word and take a look at how you can live for Jesus in this area. And then for the sake of time and for the sake of continuing in our scripture, we're going to go to the second practical area of the workplace. And where do we get that? Verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters, or some of your translations may say slaves, be subject or submit to your masters. Where did I get workplace? So here we are talking about the slave-master relationship. And what, I don't know about you, but what for, for many of us, what first comes to mind is slave-master relationships in U.S. history. African slaves brought here to be bought and sold like items. To be badly mistreated and never be free. That's what first comes to our mind, perhaps, about the slave-master relationship. And what we have to understand here are a couple things. The slave-master relationship in, in, in these biblical New Testament times is not that type of slave-master relationship that we think of from U.S. history. Um, the slave-master relationship in New Testament times, when this was written, was much more like employer-employee. These, there, there was some dignity. In fact, the fact that, that, uh, that they're being addressed in the scriptures here is giving dignity to this relationship. And so uh, these that were, that were calling servants or slaves in this passage were much more like employees, really became parts of the family, had the opportunity to earn and buy their freedom. Um, and, and so just kind of a whole different uh, set of circumstances that we could go into, but, but I hope that makes the point. Servants be subject to your masters is bringing up definitely a, more of a picture of interacting with our peers, people that are alongside of us, people that we ha have authority over us in the workplace, maybe perhaps people that have authority over you in other areas or in, as you're a student or things like that. And just to be clear, the Bible in no place condones slavery in terms of our viewpoint of that in U.S. history. Instead, why does New, the New Testament address the slave-master relationship? It's not condoning it, even in this New Testament form, but it's addressing it because God's word needs to address where people were at. And so they had this situation this kind of slave-master relationship that was more like employer-employee, and so God's word addresses it for his glory. Okay, all right, so far so good? Okay, verse 18, servants be subject to your masters with all respect. Servants submit with respect. Employee be sub submit to your boss with all respect, not only to the good and gentle bosses, but also to the unjust. 
For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, everybody say mindful of God. As you are mindful of God, as you are desiring to live out the ways of Jesus in your spheres of influence, as you interact as an employee under the authority of a boss, mindful of God, it says in verse 19, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit, verse 20, for what credit is it if you sin and are beaten for it? Do you get points for, for sinning and blowing it and then getting in trouble? It's saying, for what credit is it if you sin and are beaten for it, and then you endure? In other words, as an employee, if, you're, if you have poor work ethic, or, or, or the quality of your work is poor, or you have a bad attitude at work, or you are uncooperative and deserving to be fired, then, then what credit is it if you are, are sinning and, and not living for Jesus, and, and there's consequences, but, it goes on, verse 20, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, if your work is quality, if you are an honorable employee, but your boss discriminates unfairly, especially because of your faith in Jesus, now it's a gracious thing to endure that suffering. Enduring suffering, not that you brought upon yourself with your own sin, but we are called to endure suffering, even from an unjust boss, mindful of God, for the glory of Jesus, it says in verse 20, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Followers of Jesus declare the king and display lives lived for the glory of Jesus. So why? Both of those circumstances sound tough. Both of those situations are not something we would necessarily pick for ourselves. We as we, as freedom-loving Americans, don't necessarily love being under the authority of our, of our government, especially when we're not sure where they're coming from, especially when we know they may not follow Jesus. We might have difficult situations at work, unjust bosses mistreated because of our faith, mocked or, or whatever because of being followers of Jesus. So what is our motivation then to be those who declare and display where, where do we get our motivation and where do we get our power to be those who declare and display Jesus? Well, we, we get our motivation and power from the ultimate example, our Lord Jesus himself. Look how this passage continues, verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Jesus suffered so that it was, he was an example to us so that we might follow in his steps. Verse 22, Jesus committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But Jesus continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. I would say to the one who judges justly. And the only one who judges justly is who? 
God our Father. It doesn't matter what others think. It doesn't matter what others declare about you. It doesn't matter what misunderstandings there are about why you live the way you live and why our ways as Jesus followers are counter to our culture very often. But following in the steps of Jesus, we entrust ourselves to the only one who knows and judges justly. Verse 24, he himself, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So let's look at those last few verses again real quick. Verse 21, for to this you have been called. To what? To endure unjust suffering. Congratulations, followers of Jesus. It probably wasn't what we all signed up for when we first became followers of Jesus, but now we're followers of Jesus, and now we're hearing from his word, and now we are wanting to be shaped by him and not by our culture. And here's what he says, to this you have been called, to what? To endure unjust suffering. Why? Because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you would follow Jesus' footsteps. Followers of Jesus do what? Followers of Jesus follow Jesus. And so here we have Jesus as our ultimate example, and we are called to endure suffering as we follow him because he suffered and endured. We do too. Church family, life is hard. And if you're, not, if you're not experiencing broken, earthly, painful, trial, suffering, earthly sojourn right now, praise the Lord, I'm thankful, and I rejoice with you. But for many of you, I know life is hard. Things are broken. We could look around at these different relationships we have, governing authorities, workplace, for example, today, those are our examples today, and we could go, this is not fair. This is not how I would pick it. This is not what I had in mind, God. But we have an opportunity to look to Jesus, to his example. And verse 22 tells us what his example is. He committed no sin. There's an incredibly important truth of the scriptures here. The doctrine of the sinlessness of Christ that one of the reasons that he's the perfect and necessary rescuer for us, one of the reasons that he's the only one who God could send to make things right between you and me and between us and God, the only person is the one who came to earth and lived without sin. Church family, this is a doctrine, a truth of scripture that I need you to know and believe. Jesus, fully God, God himself, God in the flesh, the Son of God, came into the world. And yes, I don't know about the math, 100% God, 100% human. But God can do that. He did it. Absolutely. Fully God, fully man. 
Jesus comes, lives the life that we cannot live without sin, and just as it was foretold, Jesus came as the substitute to remove the sins of God's people. Jesus is the perfect spotless lamb the Old Testament pointed to. The sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. What what God's people before Christ had to do was keep making these sacrifices, keep shedding the blood of animals in hopes of making things right between their sinful separation and God's holiness. And then Jesus came and and his sacrifice was once for all. Because he is the spotless lamb, the one who was without sin, the atoning sacrifice that takes away our sin. And then, as he lived among us and set us that example to follow, what else do we hear about his example? Verse 23, when he was reviled, church family, listen with me to these words and ask me if this is natural for us. Or I mean, and consider with me if this is natural for us. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. You've been hurt? Have you been hurt at times? Is our tendency to defend ourselves? To fight back? To counter mean words with meaner words? But in what has become like a pivotal scripture verse in my life for a variety of reasons, but starting way back when with a mentor who really emphasized this passage of scripture, he kind of said something pretty grandiose about this next phrase. He would say about this next phrase that it might be the reason we're on earth is to learn this, to follow Jesus' example, and to learn to entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. Facing unfair treatment, facing unjust bosses, facing unbelieving husband, facing governing authorities that may or may not know Jesus and may or may not do things the way we would do them. We are called to endure unjust suffering. And this might be the reason you're on earth. This might be the reason you're a sojourner. This might be the reason that while we, are, we know it to be true that <clears throat> as followers of Jesus, we are citizens of heaven, while we know that to be true, the reason we might be sojourning is so that God can cause us in the midst of all the chaos and pain and trial and suffering, can cause us to know what it is to entrust ourselves to the only one who judges justly. Is our earthly life about God trying to work out circumstances for our comfort and convenience? Apparently not. That is not my experience. But it wasn't Jesus' experience. And he's our example. And we are called to follow in his steps. We are called to continue entrusting ourselves to the one who judges justly. Church family, do you recognize that God is the one just judge? Church family, do we know that Jesus reigns from the right hand of God and that he will return someday and set all things right? 
then if we do believe those things, that if we know that God is the one just judge, if we know that Jesus is coming back to set all things right, then we can follow Jesus' example and endure unjust suffering, glorifying him in our words and our actions because we know that God is good and that he's at work for our good and his glory. The gospel is the spectacular good news that God rescues sinners like you and me through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And listen to the gospel good news in the, in the last part of our passage today, verse 24. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree where he was perfect and without sin. He took our sins upon himself so that we would be forgiven. He took the pain and the consequences and the suffering of our sin upon himself, went to the cross to be executed, to die as the atoning substitutionary sacrifice for us so that when he rose again to life, it showed that we too can have life because of him. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree and that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Church family, you are not saved because of your righteousness. You are not made right with God because of all the, fact, all the rules you follow. You are not made right with God because you try hard to get your act together and do religious things. We are, tr we are saved by God's grace because of Jesus' righteousness, because he lived without sin, and because when God looks upon you, follower of Jesus, he doesn't see your sinful, nasty rebellion. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. That's how we can be saved. It's not about what we have done, but what we are doing, but what Jesus has already done. Verse 25, for you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Church family, are we thankful for our shepherd? And thankful for our shepherd, thankful for his sacrifice, thankful for the cross, thankful for God's rescuing us out of sin and into life. Thankful for that, then we want to live as followers of Jesus. We want to live into these exhortations in this letter. Thankful for what God has done for us, and not because we need to earn his favor, but so thankful for what he's done with us, we want to obey and live for him. We, we live for him not to earn his favor, we live for him because of his favor. And so then we, we go back to these practical exhortations in, in Peter's letter, and, and we know we are called to be those who declare the greatness of Jesus and display what living for him looks like in our lives. But church family, do we do that on our own strength? Is it just up to you to try hard to be those that declare and display? If you need the reminder again, let me give it to you again, because we can say, in, in the words of Paul, in Christ, we can say this. Let's say it together when this verse comes up. We can say, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Father in heaven, thank you for your love for us. 
Father in heaven, thank you for the spectacular good news of the gospel that while we were yet sinners, you sent Jesus to live the sinless life that we cannot, to die the substitutionary death that we deserved in our place, and to be raised to new victorious resurrection life, signaling that we too have resurrection life that you are alive in us and making us new, that we have life now, even as we sojourn this earthly life. We thank you for life now in Christ and the promise of eternity in the presence of God. We thank you. We thank you that it is your gift that you have saved us not because of our works, but because of Christ's work on the cross. We thank you that it's not our works that earn favor with you, but Lord, make our works the natural result. Make our obedience the natural result. Make our lives that declare and display the natural result of our thankfulness of your rescue. We have been crucified with Christ it is no longer we who live, but Christ lives in us. Thank you, Father, that you give us new desires and that you empower and, en and enable us to live lives to your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.